Because you've always taken such charge. You are listening to the Border Chronicle. Today, I'm talking to journalist Patrick Strickland about his new book, The Marauders, Standing Up to Vigilantes in the American Borderlands, which will be released in February through Penguin Random House. Patrick's new book delves into the history of armed far-right militias in the small town of Arivaca on the Arizona-Mexico border. Arivaca's history includes a tragic murder in 2009 committed by militia members against two of the town's residents, one of them a nine-year-old girl. A decade later, when armed militiamen return in the Trump era, the community of Arivaca forms a resistance campaign to push the militia out. And the story of how Arivaca comes together and forms this resistance is what makes the Marauders, I think, a particularly important book for border communities. Currently the news editor at the Dallas Observer, Strickland for many years reported in the Middle East and Europe for Al Jazeera and other news outlets, where he documented the rise of far-right extremist groups and anti-fascist movements. His work overseas led to his first book, Alerta, Alerta, Snapshots of Europe's Anti-Fascist Struggle. His experience chronicling far-right movements in Europe gives Strickland a uniquely global perspective when writing about the armed militias here at home, which are just one facet of a growing global trend that threatens democracy everywhere. I want to say I really, really enjoyed your new book, The Marauders. Um, And what I especially appreciate is that it focuses on border communities, this border community coming together uh, in resistance to these armed militia members who show up in their community. And I want to ask you, first of all, what drew you to Arivaca's story? Well, in um, October 2018, I had just come back to the States from where I was living in Greece, and I was I was filling in in the Washington, D.C. Bureau at um, Al Jazeera English, and um, that was around the time that there was the first really intense uh, focus on, you know, the so-called uh, caravan um, during the midterms, and Trump made that, you know, such a, a centerpiece of his pitch to... Uh, to keep Republicans as a majority. I was looking around for stories somehow related to the border and to, to migration that uh, could kind of flip the formula, places where people are, are pushing back. So I found uh, um, a local television um, kind of video package that had been on the nightly news. And it was uh, one of the people I spoke with a lot in the book, Clara, uh, discussing um, how she had put out all these anti-militia signs in her yard. And I, I reached out to her. At the time, I thought it might just be a long feature article or, or whatever. But um, when I first went there, I realized, okay, this is a, a much larger story and I wanted to stick with it for for a long time. And how were you received when you arrived there in Arivaca by, by Clara Godfrey and, and other residents of the town? 
Well, Claire was super helpful. Um, you know, I mean, it just, it, it was different from person to person. I think that there are a lot of people there who are uh, naturally a little bit distrustful of journalists from, from outside. Um, I went to a few town meetings and I, I interviewed uh, people at their homes and, and elsewhere. Some people were were not willing to, to speak about the militia um, presence in, in Arivaca. I think that's because of the town's the town's history with having previous brushes with uh, um, anti-immigrant militias. Right. So Arivaca has a, a sort of long tragic history with armed uh, militia movements. Uh, I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about that and and sort of describe what Arivaca is like to people who have never been there. It's a very small town. Uh, it's an unincorporated community. Um, the last count I read that it was something around 600 residents. Um, there's a bar, there is uh, a general store, uh, it's like a gas station, and there was an artist co-op, I'm not sure if it's still there. And then there is um, a humanitarian group's uh, headquarters there. There's a few houses in that area, but everything else is quite spread out. So you have a lot of, of people living on big land, quite a few ranchers down by the border. But by the time I went there, nearly uh, a decade earlier, a group of uh, rogue uh, militiamen who had gone down to the border had this big plan to sort of, you know, what they thought they were going to seal off the border. And uh, they believed that this home belonged to someone who was really high up in, in cartel business, drug dealing. And their plan was to rob the house, uh, sell the sell the, the 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 drugs that they got, take money, and so forth, and use that to fund their border operations. Um, but they didn't find much when they went there. Their notion that he was this high up cartel person, most people said that was kind of laughable. Um, they they ended up shooting and killing the man and his his nine year old daughter and. Um, the the mother uh, survived. She was shot in the leg, but survived. Um, I I I wasn't able to find her, and uh, from what I understand, she didn't. She she wasn't looking to be found. Right. So so Arivaca had this horrible murder, and I think this was in two thousand and nine, right? Of of one of their residents and his young daughter, and Clara Godfrey, who's one of the chief resistors of the new sort of wave of armed militia is related to the man who was killed, right? Uh, no, she's related to one of the people who was involved in the killing and um, doing the killing. Uh, her nephew had gotten wrapped up with the, the militia people, and um, he's, he's currently uh, serving a life sentence. And the other two, Jason Bush and Shauna Ford, are um, on death row unless anything's changed in the last couple of weeks. Wow. So when you arrived there, you quickly realized that, that it goes back many years and is very complicated with people being related to the, the killers and the people who were, who were murdered and so forth. And, and so did that make it a particularly difficult reporting and, and writing project? Yeah, I do actually think this was a, a, a lot more difficult than the first book I wrote. Um, I mean, it's a small community. Everybody knows each other. And then there were people who didn't want to to necessarily uh, voice their, their opinion so openly. 
Um, what I really, another thing I really appreciate in this book is the number of women uh, who are pushing back against these armed militia. Um, you know, we already mentioned Clara Godfrey, but there's also Megan Davern and, and Rachel Krauss, especially, who's at home taking care of her daughter and packing heat because she's got, you know, some nutty armed militia guy outside of her house. Um, in my own in my own reporting on the border, I've noticed in many communities, it's women who who speak out, who end up sort of forming these resistances to, you know, these armed militia movements. So I thought that that seemed to be the case in your book as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it just so happened that it was the case that, you know, that a lot of the people who were in the, the forefront of that were women. Um, and, you know, I had uh, a number of uh, of guys tell me that they didn't want to necessarily, you know, kick the hornet's nest when it came to the militias or, or, or anything like that. They thought it might be somewhat provocative. Of course, you know, you go to places sometimes and people just don't want the negative, what they view as negative attention. I didn't think that that's what it was. I thought the story of people kind of fighting to push these militias out was, in fact, pretty positive attention. And some people agreed with me. Some people didn't. But uh, uh, Rachel Krauss, to my knowledge, is still at it. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure she's still posting every day and keeping an eye, especially on uh, Veterans on Patrol, which has, you know, kind of started out as just a strange... Uh, homeless veterans uh, advocacy group, but quickly morphed into something looking a lot more like vigilantism. And now, to me, looks much more like a traditional kind of militia outfit. And they're sort of passing on their own tricks of the trade, I suppose. Obviously, you're from Texas and, and, and you work now for the Dallas Observer and you're in Texas. And I, I spent, you know, 20 years in Texas reporting on the Texas-Mexico border uh, I'm now in Arizona and just getting to know Arizona, but do you think these armed militias have different characteristics uh, in the different border states? Um, obviously, Arizona has a long history with them. In in Texas, there are quite a few, but uh, I they seem to have a sort of different dynamic in Texas, maybe because all of the uh, land along the border is privately owned. I, I mean, I, I actually think that strategically for them probably what they can and can't do very practically speaking is 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 different because of what you mentioned that in texas you know much of much of the land is privately owned whereas in arizona it's quite the opposite um even a lot of those ranchers uh on the border near um arivaca and sasabi and areas around there in southern arizona don't necessarily own all of that land in fact they they might have grazing rights or 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 something like that. They might have the lease on it, but they don't. They don't own it. It's not their land necessarily. So, um, but that that also is kind of premised on the assumption that um, authorities like border patrol or county sheriffs are really doing much to to stop these militias from acting in the first place. And I don't think that they are. Um, you know, of course, the official line is always we don't work with them or con condone them or. Or whatever, but um, you know, that's that's a much different thing than saying, okay, we have to stop people from running around with guns on the border and trying to effectively hunt down migrants 
and in some cases detain them, in some cases do harm to them. Beginning under the Trump administration, you know, these armed militia movements have really received a lot of, I would say, encouragement through the political rhetoric. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how it's changed? Sure. My book basically ends, uh, you know, around the time of the, the Capitol riot. So before, you know, a couple weeks before Trump's presidency ended, um, during the Trump years, it was the first time that that sort of politics surged while you had a, a president in power whom they supported. You know, um, the the big surge before that, especially on the border, had been during the Obama years. And, you know, d- despite uh, President Obama's uh, actual immigration record and, 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 and his actual policies and, and sort of very, very high numbers of deportations, you know, people people in these sort of movements were convinced that the borders were open and so forth. The strange thing is that cognitive dissonance with President Trump, you know, that th- this is a guy who they support, who's promised to seal the border shut, and yet they still believe that the borders are open, but they don't blame him for that. <laughs> so it, it, it is a strange, it is a strange movement in that way, you know, and it's a movement that has such a history of of conflict with the federal government in a lot of ways with ATF, with FBI. And um, then, you know, on the other hand, they claim that they support border patrol or that they support border patrol agents, but the agency is corrupt or so on. So they have a lot of ambivalent and often contradictory views about, about these sort of things. Yeah. What, what I really appreciate uh, about your perspective is all the years that you spent overseas reporting on anti-fascist movements and and the rise of the of far right extremism. How does that inform your work and your reporting in the United States now? Really, it was the same uh, basic idea. I wanted to find everyday people who were in some fashion or another fighting back against the rise of the far right. The immediate context in my first book was that the the refugee crisis, uh, as it was called so often at the time, which was more really a crisis of management on Europe's part, but that, you know, 2015, the number of people crossing the Mediterranean on dinghies and the number of people uh, crossing the border into the European Union um, skyrocketed. You know, and that was driven by the war in Syria, uh, violence in Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, uh, uh, what, what was what left of the war in Iraq. And then, of course, people were coming from other places where, um, you know, there were there were economic reasons. For me, I don't I don't differentiate necessarily. I, I think you can die from a bullet or die from a, from an empty stomach, as someone once told me in a camp in Greece. But at that time, as uh, as those numbers were increasing and as more people were crossing the ocean or the the sea, rather, there was there was a sharp uptick in, in far right activity in a lot of countries in Europe, even Germany, which, you know, there was this idea that Germany was the place that was refugees welcome and had unrolled the uh, the red carpet for for people for people en route to Europe. Um, it wasn't really the case, of course. But it was a convenient talking point for everybody, for, for the German government to be like, 
yeah, we're, you know, we're doing the humanitarian thing. And then for the, for the far right to be like, look, they have the, the borders open and they've given everyone in the world a green light to come here. When I was writing that book, I had the perspective that I wanted to find people who, who basically anyone could empathize with in some way. You know, one of the characters in Germany was a 71-year-old pensioner who had spent like 30 years going around and defacing or painting over um, neo-Nazi or anti-refugee or anti-Semitic graffiti and stickers and posters and stuff like that. And that was her deal. She went around and did that. To me, that was interesting. That was a kind of everyday anti-fascism or anti-racism. In Greece, one of the people was the mother of a left-wing rapper who had been um, stabbed and killed by by the members of the, the neo-Nazi party, the Golden Dawn there. Um, you know, and then of course I did speak to activists, but I, w I really wanted to look at the way people, people who just found themselves in a situation also found a way to, to sort of fight back. So I saw that parallel in, in Erivaka. You know, a lot, of, a lot of the people there who took a stand against the, the militias just did it because it was right, you know, and because they felt it was right and, and because, you know, they remembered what was, what was really at stake. They knew personally. So, so you really focus on these everyday acts of resistance and is that what really motivates you as a journalist and a reporter is, is looking for these sort of glimmers of hope? Yeah, I mean, I do, I do like that notion. I do like that idea that we can find uh, uh, people who are doing something to change really, really uh, horrific situations. I mean, you know better than I do what people go through when they make that journey. And then to, to cross into the United States and then find people, you know, approaching you with guns and, and, and whatnot must be a horrific thing. One thing I really appreciate about your new book, The Marauders, is it it is sort of that kind of like instruction for a border community as to how to form a resistance. Have you seen any other books out there that sort of talk about this dynamic or what border, you know, especially little border towns can do when these sort of scary armed individuals show up in their community? I mean, I'll just say that if there's a blueprint there or a playbook there, it's theirs, you know, I mean, it would have been only what I observed, but um, I do know that, that people in Arivaca had been in touch um, with people who had some experience in, in Oregon with the uh, wildlife uh, occupation. I forget which year that was when the, you know, militias and ranchers took over that. Um, Is that Mallory? Mal yeah. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, I'm sure it is a little bit different everywhere too, you know, I guess in a town like Arivaca where you have uh, a strange mix, you know, an interesting mix of people, people from who had once lived in a hippie commune nearby and ranchers who are very, very conservative. And then, you know, people who retired and wanted to get away from the city, you know, uh, who, whose politics could differ in all sorts of ways. I can only imagine that, that living there, you sometimes feel like these things are very delicate. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that they decided was they were going to ask businesses in town, which there's not a ton of them, uh, to not let these people 
in. And uh, the, the most important one that did that, some of them said no, but one of the, the most important one that did that was the bar, um, La Gitana, which is why that became such a, a centerpiece and a focal point. Also for the militias, they, they were really upset about this. Uh, you know, they, they, they tried so hard to go there all the time and uh, often posted videos there. And, you know, of course, they'd say this bar is a child sex trafficking cartel uh, front, you know, and I can't say what, what did or didn't work because there's still, you know, uh, there's still some militia presence there. It's not what it was when there was this huge surge of people. A lot of those people moved on to the next place. I, I mean, I, th I think that's fascinating that you have a, a community in Oregon coming down to talk to this community in Arizona about how they could, you know, form a resistance or, or giving them advice or, you know, counsel on what to do. And I also love the fact that the local bar, the, the water, local watering hole becomes the sort of center of resistance in, in this community pretty cool well it's uh, what's interesting about that i'll just say is that um if if communities like that want to want to push a group or groups out like that right then it really it really does seem like it makes sense to me that they build those sort of networks in in other places because the the militias are certainly doing it they they're bringing people in other groups on tours of the border and they you know i mean uh, Tim Foley, one of the main, one of the main militiamen, and and he says he swears his group's not a militia. Of course, um, I can't tell any difference between a militia and his group. Um, you know, he he's become sort of the man on the ground uh, for you know a lot of anti-immigrant and far-right groups in different parts of the country. Yeah, the border tour is a definite thing now. It has been for years. And and social media, which you get into in the book too, is just this huge dynamic. And I think I think made things a lot more dangerous for, for border communities, unfortunately. I agree. Um, you know, just yesterday I was looking at some of the border groups on Telegram. I mean, it's it, there there's this constant appeal to send donations oftentimes in the form of gift cards, which I think is really funny. Um, but, you know, that you have to wonder sometimes how much of it is a grift. I really don't know the answer because I can't know what's in their, in their hearts or what their real intentions are. I do think a lot of these people believe the things that they say, but I think some of them know that they're, they're grifting and um, some of them know that, that they're just selling a product. I really do think that. And I think all that is possible with social media. I don't think it would be to that same extent um, without it. You know, I mean, I, I can actually just think you wrote about him as well, but I got into him a little bit in the book. But Casey Massey from Texas, he certainly didn't have that that massive of a, a social media following or, or whatever. Yeah, I wrote, uh, I, that was interesting to see Casey Massey in your book, because I wrote about him in 2014 for the Texas Observer when he was down near Brownsville uh, with a small group of militia guys. Yeah, I mean, pretty tragic end, actually, to Casey Massey's uh, life, right? He was being pursued uh, by federal agents. Yeah, it was like, 
ATF, FBI, U.S. Marshals, um, there was a big manhunt. It went on for several months, I believe eight or nine months. And then right around Christmas time in 2019, um, you know, he was, he was found dead, um, very strangely, just by coincidence, very close to where my, my grandma lives. And, um, there was a lot of information in, in court filings because one of his friends had sheltered him for a few days. And I believe that he had, it was a probation violation and then he went on the run. I think he, I think he failed a drug test. And, um, if that had been that, then that, you know, that wouldn't, wouldn't really be a story that dovetailed too much with what I was working on, except for that there was this network of, of people in the militia community who really started to rally in his defense and say, you know, he's being pursued for political reasons. And that Casey Massey himself promised uh, a shootout if, if he were to be caught. Um, and uh, in the end, he did, um, from what I recall in the uh, police report, he, he, he shot and killed himself out in on some rural land in, in East Texas. Um, I tried to, to get more information about that, but you know, FOIA requests were rejected. So, so I guess there's still some kind of investigation and into it in some regard, it must be regarding the people who assisted him. Yeah. I mean, in the, in, in my time reporting on Casey and the guys that were with him at, at Camp Lone Star and in Brownsville, um, my experience with these guys, a lot of them is that, you know, they're really running away from a sort of long history of, you know, bankruptcies, failed marriages, um, you know, criminal issues. They're sort of on the run and sort of looking for this redemptive uh, narrative or some way to uh, redeem redeem themselves. It's, uh, they're complicated, you know, psychologically, which... So in these communities like Arivaca, you know, they're dealing with these really complex, psychologically often messed up characters who are, are very well armed. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of people in that movement use it to uh, as a launch pad to just totally reinvent themselves. You know, um, veterans on patrol. Uh, uh, Mike, Michael Meyer, Lewis Arthur, as he also goes by. Yeah, I mean, he has a long, he has a long rap sheet, including felonies. Um, you know, but now he's on the border and, you know, he's got, uh, I don't know, um, maybe pensioners and uh, who knows, Alabama or South Carolina or wherever, sending him gift cards for the Walmart and the Shell station. And he's got a lot of subscribers on his Telegram thing for, for his channel about the, the, the so-called border war, as he calls it. And he almost now uh, speaks to people as if he is some sort of a, a religious leader, you know, and he refers to his group sometimes as a ministry, which is just astounding. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not that different than Casey Massey in that regard. He had a long record too, uh, and he had spent time in lockup. And uh, then you know, going down to the border, you know, he was able to, to re, to rebuild himself in some way, to remake himself. It was, it's kind of a strange makeover, but, um, you know, it's one that, 
won him a lot of fans in those communities. Obviously, when I was at Camp Lone Star, Casey Massey was there and so forth. I was the only woman there, you know, me and Jen Real, the photographer. And uh, Jen and I called it men hiding from women. <laughs> a lot of these guys seem to be hiding out from their wives or ex-wives. <laughs> but anyway, that's that's just an aside, because I know there are women involved in the militia movement. Obviously, I mean, Shauna Ford was, you know, the architect of the tragedy in Arivaca. Um, so, so there are women involved, but they're definitely a minority, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's no doubt that there's women involved in various capacities. Even in Tim Foley's group, his, um, uh, to my understanding, his former partner, Jane Fields, was she sort of acted as their press liaison, too. You know, I mean, she answered the emails and... Um, the first time I, re I remember the first time I had reached out to them before I really knew what the story would be. Um, she was like, yeah, we can, you know, T Tim could meet you and, uh, it'll be $200 a day. And I was like, what, <laughs> you know, like I'm not paying $200 to, uh, you know, I mean, who, you can't pay for an interview. Right. And, uh, you know, then I, I, I had this. I had later spoken to um, someone, some people who had left the group, and they said that a lot of reporters had actually paid those fees. You know, of course, I didn't know for sure. That's what the militia claimed, at least, you know, can't say for sure. But I felt very uneasy about that idea um, that anybody had, you know, effectively helped bankroll them in some way. Oh, that's interesting. So they're paying them as like border fixers, basically. Like show, give me, give me your, your, your right, right wing border tour and I'll pay you the $200. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what they claim, you know, and that's certainly what they asked of me, which is why I was only able to speak to Tim by the telephone. Um, and then after the first time we talked, he never wanted to speak to me again with these militia groups. Um, they say everything that, that you need to know publicly usually, you know, and then there's so many people who are disaffected and leave the groups who are upset over one thing or another, it's not hard to find people who know how it is inside, from the inside. And I think probably my own history of reporting had, you know, put me at in a little bit more difficult position for getting access. You know, it, it happened that that was around the time that there was this Antifa hysteria and having written a book about anti-fascism didn't really do me any favors. Yeah. Um, throughout his administration, Trump was talking about Antifa and, you know, false flags. And Antifa actually was behind January 6th. It wasn't his followers. And uh, something similar to that happening in Europe as well, where they really try to malign, you know, anybody in, in an anti-fascist movement. Well, I mean, it, it, it differs from country to country for sure. Um, what's funny is like uh, in Greece, the, the rhetoric from the, the right wing ruling party, New Democracy and the, the ultra neo-Nazi sort of far right and Golden Dawn and other other groups like that was that, you know, these anti-fascists were all funded by George Soros or, or whatever. And that's just the exact same thing we hear here. You know, I mean, right now I'm working on a story about uh, a capital rioter 
who alleged Capitol rioter, who, you know, admits that he was there, that he was fighting with police on the front line, and uh, uh, then says, but all the vandalism was done by Antifa. And you're just like, well, that 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 is absurd, you know. But he's running for office here in Texas, and his entire his entire pitch for the state house seems to be, I attended January six, <laughs> so uh, he and his wife have have made that claim a few times um, that Antifa was, you know, to blame for whatever happened inside the building uh, damage, and that. Um, their group, even though they admit that they fought with cops, it was entirely nonviolent. Yeah, it's fascinating, sort of the mainstreaming of this rhetoric or, you know, QAnon and and border invasion. And, you know, because we now have like actual, you know, elected officials whose rhetoric is very similar to some of the militia guys, you know, about this being, there being an invasion. And there seems to be a lot more of that now. I don't know if you followed, actually. We had this QAnon cult here in Dallas in the last few few months. I was going to ask you about them. Are they still there on the overpass? Uh, from what I understand, they have started to clear out, and they're heading, I believe, to Arizona, is at least what one of my reporters uh, told me, because I, I, I didn't actually report on them, but one of my writers did. And... You know that it just it just kind of highlights to you like what people will believe. You know they were convinced that that uh, John F. Kennedy and JFK Jr. were coming back, but also that once they come back, they're gonna reinstate Trump as president or vice president or whatever. You know that it would be a Trump. Just strange. I don't know why they really believe that the Kennedys and Trump would have been political allies. It's kind of a weird, <laughs> a weird, uh, a weird. Um, thing to to think um but you know some of them were drinking from what family members of people who were there told us you know some of them were drinking um peroxide and uh a substance that was like bleach in small amounts you know and we certainly had our 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 fears here that you know that would be something much worse than it was and the way that I think that that dovetails with with border stuff is that there, you know, there's just this belief in this, this like so, so easily um, refuted conspiracy theory that uh, there is this secret, you know, cabal of uh, liberals who are, you know, trafficking children in mass and and so on. And Veterans on Patrol is doing a very good job of pushing us, uh, that narrative now in, in Pima County. Wow. So so the folks that were in Dallas, where you're at, are on their way to Arizona or already here? Or That's what one of my reporters told me. They're going out to Arizona for some Trump-related event. I don't know if they'll come back here. I, I'm not sure. You know, they communicate uh, in, uh, like, num- numeric codes or whatever, so... Um, uh, I, I I noticed today that their telegram had been made private, so I I can no longer peek every now and then and get my daily dose of uh, going mad. Well, and along those lines, uh, so you know we've got midterms this year. Uh, where do you, where do you think we're headed with all of this? What do you see coming in the future? 
Well, I mean, the border, there's just absolute, um, there's absolute addiction uh, to the southern border in this country. I mean, it, it is such an obsession with politicians and, um, and people, often people who live nowhere near it and never have been there and whatever. Uh, you know, I live in Dallas and, um, you know, I meet people all the time who talk about open borders and I'm just like, what are you talking about? Like, well, how has immigration ever impacted your life? You know, it hasn't. It, I mean, you can't even tell me that it has. Um, and yet people consistently make that one of their top priorities. Um, and then the thing that's super alarming to me now is that uh, how mainstream those those views are. Um, just take like Greg Abbott, for instance. Uh, I think his rhetoric, okay, after the El Paso shooting in 2019 um, at the Walmart, which killed like, I believe it was 23 was the, the final count, 23 people uh, murdered by someone operating on anti-immigrant conspiracy theories. Every Republican in Texas came out and said, you know, we have to fight the scourge of hate and so on, condemned it. And now it is just um, horrific to see how close some of their rhetoric is to, to those very same beliefs, you know. And beyond all of that, like, I mean, we're at a point, too, where I just think there's almost no discussion of what pe why people leave the places they leave and why they might really need protection and why staying in Mexico might not really be an option because it's not safe. You know, there's just no empathy in a, in a lot of ways. Um, and sadly, it was very similar to, to what was going on in Greece at the time that I left too. Yeah, um, I wanna thank you so much for, for taking the time today to to talk to me and, and we're looking forward to having you in Tucson. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Take care. The Border Chronicle is reported by Todd Miller and Melissa Del Bosque, based in Tucson, Arizona. This interview was edited by me, Lily Clark. You can read and listen to more local border reporting on our website, theborderchronicle.substack.com.